0: We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 tonight. We're going to be at, looking at verses 13 through 21. Uh, we're actually going to finish up 1 John tonight. Uh, we're doing the epistles of John. So next week we'll, we'll get started on 2 John, but it's very, very short. I don't know if we'll have be able to do all that in one week or two, but then we'll, and then we'll get to 3 John after that, which is also very, very short. And so uh, we, we don't, we're actually almost there, almost done with this particular study. But tonight we're going to finish up, as I said, First John chapter 5. And, uh, you know, one of the things, if you remember back early in this study, we, one of the things that John was dealing with was some of the different uh, philosophies that had been creeping into their church and the Gnosticism, which is, you know, a Gnostic was somebody who said that they had special knowledge that that's how they were saved and if you didn't have this special knowledge you weren't saved and so John has been all through this letter vitally concerned that his re- readers know a number and he uses that word very carefully it's actually a form of the word uh, that, that we use, that we get the word Gnostic from and uh, and and he wants them to, to know that a number of things are true because they've come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah as the Son of God in fact, I'm going to start by giving you a quick survey of this little five chapter letter, and it reveals at least the following things that we know. Listen to this. There, there's uh, like 22 different items that when you go through 1 John and you see where he used this word, you'll see this. Uh, he said we can know that we know God. as in chapter 2, verse 3, 13, 14, and then chapter 4, verse 7. We can know that we are in God in chapter 2 verse 5. We can know that this is the last hour chapter 2 18. We can know the truth chapter 2 and chapter 3. For sake of time if you want the references I'll give them to you later. Uh, We can know that Jesus is righteous. We can know that we will be like Jesus. We can know that Jesus came to take away sins. We can know that Jesus is sinless. We can know that we have passed out of death and into life. We can know that no murderer has eternal life. We can know love. We can know that God abides in us. We can know the Spirit of God. We can know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. We can know that we love God's children. We can and this is where, where it begins the, the, the last six uh, or so um, or, uh, uh, yeah, or seven actually, are all from what we're going to be looking at tonight. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God answers prayer. We can know that we will not practice sin. We can know that we belong to God. We can know that the Son of God has has come. We can know that the Son of God has given us understanding and we can know Him who is true. So you see over and over and over again, John is just hitting away at this saying, I want you to to see what what you already can know that there's not some special hidden knowledge that you need to have, but you know all of these things just because of Jesus. And the reality is Christianity is not an I hope so or I think so faith. It's an I know so faith because what has been revealed in the Bible was given to us by God, a God who speaks and a God who speaks only truth. So as John closes, uh, brings this letter to a close, what is it in particular that that John wants every child of his to know. And he remember, he referred to all of his, the people he had led to the Lord in the churches as my little children. So that's who he's talking about. Well, let's look at it. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wanted his readers to know or to be sure, to be certain that they had eternal life. And so we see assurance is of eternal life is one of the central themes of the letter, and that Jesus is the eternal life proclaimed by John. Eternal life is promised by God in 2.25, is evidenced by those who love one another in 3.14, and he comes to everyone who has the Son in chapter 5, verse 12. And And, and that his readers know that they have eternal life through believing in the Son, Name of the one who is life, just simply by that, not by any other knowledge, not by any, other, any activity, that, that, though, that his readers know that is one of John's main concerns. And in a re- very real sense, the entire letter of 1 John has been pointing to this one verse. Um, and because he, this is actually the, the last time that he starts off with this phrase, I write these things. He's done this a number of times already. Actually, on five prior occasions before this, he's given reasons for writing. I like the way John Piper lists and summarizes all six of these. In 1 John 1, 4, he said, we write this to make our joy complete. So the joy of of their assurance would be his joy. And and he wants that. It's good to want a joy like that. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does, anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he hopes that this letter will give them fresh power to overcome sin. And and part of his method in helping them overcome sin is to assure them that failures do not have to prove fatal to your eternal life. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So in other words, he is filled with hope that the ones he's writing to are truly believers, that they are forgiven, that they know God, that they have triumphed over the evil one. Then chapter 2, 21. I do not write to you. So this is the same thing, but it's using the negative. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes to the truth. Same thing. He's saying my letter is not to get you started in the Christian life, but to confirm you in it. Chapter 226. I'm writing these things to you, uh, uh, to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So he's concerned with false teaching. And this letter is meant to protect them from those who would lead them astray. Uh, and then uh, 513, we're about, we just read it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the one that dominates in this entire letter. Most of what what uh, is here is designed to provide what I would call tests of life. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. That that is, that you may know that you're born again from death into life, that you're born of God. So summing up all these reasons for writing, 1 John goes something like this. This would be the summarization. I'm writing because you are true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst. And I want you to be be rock-solid confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate children of God so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, My joy will be complete. That's why John wrote it. So at the heart of his reason for writing is the desire to help them know that they're born again, that they now have new spiritual life, that they now have eternal life. So with the assurance of eternal life, though, comes another confidence. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this one. And that is answered prayer. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. Now, we're going to get into this because there's a lot there we need to unpack. But those believing in Jesus, in in the name of Jesus, have confidence in approaching God. Confidence before God is a huge, important theme in this letter, by remaining in Jesus, believers, uh, he said in two, chapter 228, that believers, by remaining in Jesus, believers may have confidence at his coming. And likewise, in another place, in chapter 3, 21, he said, if our conscience does not condemn us, and if love is mature within us, we may have confidence for the day of judgment, chapter 417. However, the special focus here is specifically on the confidence that believers have in approaching God in prayer. Listen, prayer is the ultimate expression of our access to God. It it is, it just is. The fact that the creator of the entire universe listens to our requests and our petitions is truly remarkable. I mean, who are we that God should listen to us? And, And yet he does. We know that we have access to God And there, and that, and and that we may therefore confidently approach him in prayer. Prayer. This is why prayer is the acting on the knowledge that I'm confident before God that I have access to Him. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And and so, it, it seems to me that our level of confidence in prayer reflects the level of our confidence in our access to Him. So if I'm confident in prayer, it's because I have a a confidence that I actually can approach Him. If I'm not confident in my access to God, I'm probably not even going to pray. And so I'm not going to pray with any confidence at all because I'm not sure that I have the right to talk to Him. I'm not sure that I can really come into His presence. But if I'm confident of that access, which John is saying we can be, not because we have earned it, but because Jesus has made the way, he's bought the way, he's paid the price, he's opened the door so that we can enter the throne room of God. So knowing what Christ has done for us gives us confidence to know I can go to God directly right now without reservation. I can go to him and that's what gives me confidence in prayer. Listen, it is one thing to talk about access to God, but it's a whole different thing to act on it. And so surely prayer is the chief way in which we act on our access to God. The, the, the confidence that I'm referring to here, though, is, is not confidence that God will give us whatever we ask. That's not what I'm saying, because he will do as he wills. God has his will. He will do what he wills. But what I am referring to is, is literally just specifically our confidence to pray, to the the confidence we have to bring our humble requests and petitions to him, knowing that when I come to him, not not knowing what his answer will be, but when I come to him, I know he will not turn me away. He will not reject me. He's not going to say, hey, get out of here. You have no right to be here. Get out of my presence. I don't want you here. But he welcomes our coming to him. And he wants to hear our requests. And because God has granted us access to him through Jesus, we know that we can ask anything, and he will hear us. Now, understand this. There's a difference between him hearing us and him granting the request. Because when I pray, God doesn't always say yes. Has anybody found that out? Is that, you know... I mean, is there any parent here that that anytime your child ever came to you, you always said yes, no matter what? If you did, you have raised a monster. <laughs> I can guarantee that. But uh, uh, let me let, let me put it this way. I, I don't know any celebrities. I don't know. Anybody here ever met, met a celebrity? All right. So some of you have met. I don't know any celebrities. But imagine that in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, you got to meet your favorite celebrity, and spend some time with him or her. Now, just imagine that this celebrity takes a genuine interest in you, not, not just being nice, but, but takes an actual interest in you and then actually befriends you. Imagine that he or she gives you their cell phone number and says to you, I want you to call me anytime. Imagine this, okay? I don't know, I don't know what celebrity you're thinking of, but imagine that celebrity doing that to you. Uh, imagine that your celebrity friend offers to hang out with you. Saying, that, what if they, imagine that they call you up and say, hey, let's go see a movie together. Or they invite you into their home. Imagine that you end up having a long-term, meaningful friendship with your favorite celebrity. You know what? You have been granted access, and access to someone like that is a privilege. Because lots of people would love to have that kind of access, but most people don't get it your access and friendship. What does that mean? That means that you could ask your celebrity friend the kind of questions that nobody else would even dream of asking. That means your celebrity friend would do you a favor when one need, needed to be done. They, they, would, they might help you move into a new house. They might become the godparent of your child. You know, they they would probably help you out out of their abundant resources in a time of crisis or need just because you're their friend. Now imagine that you have that kind of access to the most powerful being in the universe. Imagine that he regards you as a member of his family and you can call on him whenever you want. You can ask him for the deepest desires of your heart, things that you may not say aloud to anyone else. Imagine that you have unrestricted access to him, knowing that he always listen. Can you imagine that? I hope you can, because that's what you have if you believe in Jesus, the Son of God. What a remarkable privilege we have to approach God in prayer. Uh, and su- such confidence before, before God involves knowing that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and we know that we have what we asked of Him. Now, In chapter 3, verse 22, John already touched on the subject of prayer once in this letter. And there he informed us that God answers our prayer when we are, number one, keeping His commands, and number two, when we're doing those things that please Him. Now, in this verse, in this passage, he adds a third requirement. And that is, he said in verse 14, that we must ask according to His will. Now, with these three keys in place, John says we can be confident toward God as we pray. Indeed, we can know that he hears us as we ask. And not only that, when those three things are in place, we can know that we have whatever we have asked him for. Now, I want to say here, we have to be careful because John frames this statement in a very specific theological and biblical context. And this is a verse where, part of the verse has sometimes ripped out of context and people begin to say see all you have to do is pray it and believe it and you can make it happen and that's not what it says it's it says that if we ask anything according to his will we have what we ask that's what it says there so we have to be careful prayer is not wishful thinking It's not hoping against hope. It's not dreaming big or desiring to fulfill the longing of the flesh. See, God is is not a heavenly genie who operates at our beck and call. And prayer isn't the Christian method of rubbing the lamp to get God's attention and to get him to do whatever we want him to do. We, We must never fall into the unspiritual and the dangerous trap of regarding prayer as a convenient method for imposing our will on God or bending his will to our wants. In fact, can I tell you the reality about that? Trying to do that, and anybody that teaches you that you can get whatever you want by praying a certain way or saying the right words or thinking a certain way, that I'm here to tell you is much closer to witchcraft than it is Christianity. Because what is witchcraft? Witchcraft is when you're trying to use uh, words or methods or whatever it might be to manipulate spiritual forces around you. And if you do the same thing to God, you're closer to to practicing witchcraft than you are Christianity. That's just the reality of it. But rather prayer, listen to this. This is so important for us to get. Prayer is a means of submitting our will to his. Great uh, pioneer missionary E. Stanley Jones once said this. I love this is one of my all time favorite prayer quotes. This is what he said. Prayer is surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from a boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Isn't that good? So every true prayer, we, we need to understand this, every true prayer is a variation of the theme where Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Every true prayer has that in its heart. Now, there are some in this world that will tell you, if you say, if you pray, Lord, if it's your will, do this, that that's a lack of faith. That is just hogwash. That is not Jesus himself, when he taught us to pray, he said, he said uh, that, that what was one of the things he said in what we call the Lord's prayer? He said, that we should pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're taught by Jesus we are to pray for the will of God, right? Very clearly. And, and, and John here, who was, who was there, he saw Jesus. He watched Jesus. He heard him teach with his own ears. And he's saying the same thing, that it's that we have to pray according to his will. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Understanding that a lot of us get that, but we have to remember... God's will may be different than what you want. Right? Entering boldly into his presence, but with proper humility, we acknowledge that he has the power to give us what we ask. But we also realize he has the right to answer however he pleases. However, the good news is in this, uh, because sometimes, you know, we don't get what we want and we're like toddlers, and we throw a little temper tantrum. Anybody ever had that moment, you know, where you don't get to what you want, and you're like mad for a while or whatever? But here's the good news. Although God's will may be different from what you want, I believe personally, and I believe Scripture bears this out, that in the long run, may not feel this way at the beginning, but in the long run, God's will will always be better than what you want. We, we, we know that however he answers, whether he says yes, don't you love it when he says yes? Sometimes he says no. We don't like that so much. Sometimes he says, wait, you're not ready for it. Sometimes he says, wait, no, I've got something better for you. But however he answers, we know that he's going to work everything out for our good. And by the way, our good is not the same thing as our comfort how many of you have ever made your children do things that, that that were uncomfortable that made them uncomfortable but you did it because you knew it was good for them right so god is far more interested in developing our character than he is in in giving us comfort he's about uh, about his goal is to make us like christ not to make us comfortable on earth in fact. This earth is in our home. We shouldn't get too comfortable here, anyway. But uh, but uh, he reserves the right to say what we, what he wants for us. And the good news is that what he wants is always for our good. Maybe not what we want, maybe not what's most comfortable, but it is what's best for us. Now Jesus, he was a great model of this. Uh, look in Matthew chapter twenty-six. I'm going to read uh, verses thirty-nine through forty-two. You'll recognize the passage immediately. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Oh, I always thought that was kind of funny because they're all sleeping, but he singles out Peter. I always kind of feel bad for Peter there. He was like, they're all asleep. He's like, Peter, couldn't you just stay awake for an hour? And he's like, Whoa, wait, you know, I just picture this Peter in this moment. I feel bad for him. Verse 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So here he is praying And saying, Lord, this is what I want. I submit it to you, however. And if if there's no way that this can be in your will, then I will submit to your will. And in fact, by doing so, submitting himself to a great deal of discomfort. So you see this modeled in his very life. In in communicating with God, therefore, believers do not demand what they want and they do not demand, we do not demand what we think we need. Rather, what we do is we discuss with God what he wants for us. When when, when believers align their prayers to God's will, that's when we know he hears and he answers those prayers. Anytime I pray according to the will of God, I know he will answer that prayer in every time. The problem is I like to think that things that I want are the will of God when they may not necessarily be. Uh, But but since he hears their prayers uh, and we're praying according to his will, we can be certain that he will give us a positive answer. Praying in line with God's will is the key to getting whatever believers ask. So it's also, by the way, prayer prayer. In line with God's will is prayer that will benefit God's kingdom, not just you personally, but it'll be good for the whole kingdom, for everybody, for the church. All right. Now, in verses 16 and 17, John gets specific regarding regarding prayer. In verses 14 and 15, that was about petitions and requests. Verses 16 and 17, it's about intercession. I'm going to read it to you and I'll tell you, well, I'll say it in a minute, but let me read it to you. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, so the issue here is seeing someone in sin. And in the original uh, language here, in the original text, there's some form of the word sin appears seven different times in verses 16 through 18. And verse 16 is one of the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Scripture because we read this, and he really doesn't give us any explanation because he says these things, there's a sin that does not lead to death, and there is a sin that does lead to death. And we read read that, and, and we're like, okay, what does that mean? But he doesn't explain it. We're going to get into it a little bit tonight. An important type of prayer is that which intercedes for a brother or sister who is seen to commit a sin that does not lead to death. We, we can be confident, according to John, that God will give life to that person. But the question is, and I think this is the question that burns in our hearts when we read this is, what is this sin that does not lead to death? And what is this sin that does lead to death? Well, John John's readers apparently already understood. He must have taught it to them personally because he didn't elaborate further. If, if that was a new concept, he would have explained it to him. But there are three main views that have been put forward, and I'm going to give you some uh, some clues that I f- think we see in the Scripture that help us determine which one of these is most likely. And I'll say this. On this, I don't know that any teacher can be dogmatic. I don't think any teacher can read this and say, oh, this is definitely what it means right here. I think it's just uh, it's so difficult to, to uh to, put, to, to interpret, to be able to understand, to be able to teach it, that uh, I'm not going to say that, that what I think is correct is absolutely right and that nobody else could possibly be right. So, But I'm going to give you what I have and tell you why I believe it. All right, so the three main views have, have been put forward. Number one is that it's a specific sin that he's talking about. For example, some have proposed that maybe he's referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and there, there, it's this actually, that idea that this is specific sin that leads to a differentiation taught in the Roman Catholic Church between what they call mortal sins, you know, that's the seven sins leading to death, the seven deadly sins, and what they call venial sins, and those are sins that, that are pardonable. Uh, and in fact, when you talk about specific sin, we also know, some, and some talk about this, that in the New Testament, it records instances of sins that caused the physical deaths of church members committing them. For example, Ananias and Sapphira. They came in, they lied to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. If you don't know that story, you can look it up and read it. Uh, And they died. So, uh, by the way, that's also a consideration in trying to figure out this. Is he talking about physical death or is he talking about spiritual death? Um, And so... Okay, the second major view point put forward is that of apostasy. Some have interpreted these words to indicate Christians who've rejected Christ, who've turned away from their faith, and their sin of, of apostasy will lead to their spiritual ruin, re, uh, spiritual, ruin, spiritual ruin. And then the third view is is just a heretical denial of the faith. So let's get into this. The, I want to lay groundwork and just hang with me. We're going It's going to get a little bit... Deep here for a little bit, but if you listen carefully, I think you'll be able to follow along. And then we're going to come back out the other end and got some other great stuff. All right. So, the sin that does not lead to death could be a sin or it could just be sin. Because in the original Greek, there's no article, it doesn't say a sin. Now, in the original Greek, it doesn't have to be there. So, it could be either one. But, but it could be either, either it, it, uh, it doesn't, it's not one or the other for sure. And likewise, it's the same for the sin that does lead to death. That could be a sin, it could be interpreted that way, or it could just be interpreted sin. So, in working to, to figure out what it is, if, it's, if it is a specific sin or if it is sin in general, uh, the first clue is found in verse 17, because he writes, all wrongdoing is sin. Now, it'd be very, very unlikely that that should be taken as, uh, to mean all wrongdoing is a sin. That wouldn't make any sense. And so it's, it's very likely that that would be interpreted as sin in general. And that suggests to us that all throughout the passage, verses 16 and 17, John is talking about sin in general and not particular sins because then he'd be jumping back and forth. So the second clue, is the phrase that it says, leads to death. That's a a very interesting phrase. Because, and it occurs four times in verses 16 and 17, three of the four times in the negative, where it says, does not lead. So it either leads or does not lead. So that expression, leads to death, suggests that there is a type of sin which puts a person on a path toward death. Not not that the sin immediately kills, uh, but it sets a a deadly direction. In in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, we know that John acknowledges that all people have sinned, but through confession we are forgiven and purified, verse 9 of chapter 1. And if sin can be forgiven, what is the type of sin or specific sin, either one, that might then lead to death? Well, all of that to say, to pull together. Given the thrust of the letter as a whole, it seems that the only sin that 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 uh, that it could never be forgiven in the context of First John is the persistent lack of belief in the one whom God has sent, who has, got, whom God has sent to die for our sins. So it's a rejection of Christ. As one commentator states, the sin that does lead to death is mo- most likely that of the unbeliever. So in that sense, when you read it, the one who sins, has, a, has, a, has a, sins a sin that does not lead to death, he's referring to a believer there. The sin that does lead to death, he's referring to a nun, an unbeliever. Um, and, and that's kind of help you clarify the, the whole idea a little bit. And so... Uh, since our sins are forgiven through confession and belief in Jesus, sin that leads to death is sin that remains unforgiven. So if I have unforgiven sin, that means that I have not confessed to Jesus and I haven't placed my trust in him. Uh, And that, that leads to death. And and I think I, 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 anyway, because John was right, put another context, another way of saying it, because John was writing against false teachers who, remember, they denied Jesus' Jesus's deity. We talked about that early in the study, that they said Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He didn't really die on the cross, all of this kind of stuff. So they're denying that, that He really existed, and they're denying that He really paid the penalty for their sins. They're denying Jesus' deity. Uh, and, and so these false teachers are doing that, and they're also acting immorally. They're saying our bodies don't mean anything. So we can do whatever we want. We can sin any way we want with our body because our spirit has been saved and our body doesn't make any difference. So these are the people he's referring to that he's teaching about. that He's trying to uh, uh, protect them from and and the, the sin that leads to death most likely refers to that attitude of continued rebellion against God and the unrepentant spirit that would never receive salvation because if that's my heart, if that's my spirit, if I'm unrepentant and I refuse to believe Jesus truly came to earth and I refuse to believe that he really died on the cross for my sin, how is it possible to be saved? It's not. That's the point he's trying to make. And the sin that leads to death is the sin of rejecting Jesus as the savior of of mankind who came to this earth physically to pay the price for all the sins of the world. Now, There is one issue that remains that's a little puzzling in this verse. What does John mean when he says, I'm not saying he should pray about that? Because it's right after the statement where he says there is a sin that leads to death. And he says, I'm not saying that he should pray about that. And and that could be construed, if we don't understand what's going on there, to mean that John is telling them he's discouraging prayer for people who do not believe. But I want you to notice something here. John does not say not to pray. You catch the double negative. He He says, I'm not saying that this is something to pray about. But he's also saying he didn't say you shouldn't pray. That's not what he said. But it is clear that he's doubtful that it will do any good. So these false believers who have turned their backs, who rejected Christ and they're unrepentant. He's saying to them, he's not saying don't pray for them, but he's saying he, he's, he's, he clearly doubts that prayers will do any good on their heart because their heart is so hard. Um, and so what's happening here, I think, is really more likely just a clarifying statement. In other words, John is just clarifying that he's talking about prayer for those who sin does not lead to death, this, uh, a believer who sins, who's put themselves on the wrong path, who's moving the wrong direction, He's saying, you need to pray for those people. Uh, but he's saying, that's who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the unbelievers when I'm, when I'm talking about this. He's not, so he's just clarifying that the topic that he's dealing with. So now I want to say this. If confidence in prayer reflects confidence in our access to God, then we might say that prayer for a brother or sister caught in sin reflects our love for them. If I, if you are my brother or sister in Christ and you're caught up in sin, if I really love you, I will pray for you. So, praying in that sense is, is a reflection of our love for them. If, if, if you see a brother or sister in Christ caught up in some, some sin, it happens, it happens, people get confused. People, people make dumb choices, but that people get caught up in sin. Who They are brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, and, and I don't believe that person, you know, the person who's saved, you know, just if they commit one sin, suddenly they're on their way to hell. I think that God's grace is stronger than that. I think it's a process of pulling away from Christ where we eventually we are outside of Christ. That's a subject for a different time to talk about. But if we see a brother or sister in Christ who is getting caught up in something that is not godly, that is not good, that's going to set them on a path toward destruction and toward death. I'm here to tell you, don't talk to other people about them first. Actually, don't do that at all, because that'd be gossip. But talk first to God. He's the one you need to be talking to about it. Pray for their restoration. Because we know that is always God's will for them to be restored. Surely genuine love for others ought to issue forth in fervent prayer for them. And yet so often we fail to pray for others as we ought. Don't we? Why is that? You know, I mean, for some Christians, it seems easier to offer practical deeds of love than it is to sit down and pray for a loved one. And yet the reality is, There is nothing easier to do than to pray for someone. We can literally do it anywhere. We don't need time to prepare for it. And and it doesn't need to take a lot of time. So, And not only is there nothing easier to do for them, but there is nothing more powerfully helpful than prayer. You know, sometimes it's, I do the same thing. I'm not, I'm not uh, lecturing you. I'm trying to tell you this is how I am too. But so many times we, you know, we try everything else and then we say, well, nothing else to do but pray. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got this backwards. Prayer, talking to the God who can do anything is the most effective thing that we can do. We should do that before we do anything else, not as a last resort. Uh, but, but uh, you know, uh, and that that's where, that's where the irony li- lies. That that the God who can do anything according to His will listens to our prayers, and we can be confident that He listens to our prayers. What can we then possibly do for a friend that is more significant than pray for them? And that's that's the irony of it. There is nothing easier to do and nothing more powerfully helpful than to pray for someone in need. And yet we find ourselves often failing to do it. I mean, is it because we don't really believe in the power of prayer? Is it because we foolishly think that other actions will be of more benefit than prayer? Is it because we don't really care what happens to our friend? But The truth is a praying friend is a friend indeed. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is so easy. We don't feel like we're doing anything. But maybe we need to refocus our mind and think of it differently and realize what a powerful impact my prayers can have. And so that I'm not thinking of it as saying, well, I I prayed, but I didn't really do anything. No, you did the one thing that needs to be done before anything else. And so I think maybe it's just the way we think about it. Maybe we need to change the way we think. Verse 18 and 19, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. All right, here in verse 18, John makes three powerful affirmations that assure us once again of our victory over sin. First, we know that the person born of God does not keep on sinning. The NIV, it says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, technically, that word continue is not in the original Greek, but the idea, the grammar of the sentence, it's added there. That's a correct addition because that's the idea behind it, is that it's not that you don't ever sin. Anybody here sinless? No, of course not. And so because if if that's what it meant, then that says if we asked, are you born of God and you committed a sin? The answer would be, well, I must not be born of God. But the idea behind it is that that they they, that person does not keep on sinning. They don't keep going down that path. Sin is no longer the pattern of his or her life. See, it's a question of allegiance. Those born of God now belong to his family and therefore no longer identify with the pattern of sin. Second, the one who is born of God keeps or protects him. Now here, uh, like if you'll notice, I don't know about your translation, but in the NIV, the, the one there is capitalized. Because in this case, he's talking about Jesus. How do I know that? Well, I know that because we don't keep ourselves. Jesus keeps us. The one who has been born of God keeps them safe. And so Jesus is the one, the only begotten of the Father. He's the one that keeps us safe. Therefore, and this is our third promise, therefore the evil one cannot harm him. Now that that word translated as harm, or some some versions might say cannot touch him. It, it has the idea of grabbing hold of something or someone with the intent to harm. So he's he's saying that if you're, born of God, that Jesus is is your guardian, he is your protector, and he will not allow Satan to grab hold of you. That's the literal meaning of this. Alexander Alexander Ramsey says this, he said, He is well kept whom Christ keeps. The enemy of souls cannot lay hold of him. He assaults, but cannot seize Satan may grab at us and tempt us through doubt, through friends who fall away, through idols, through through fleshly enticements, through worldly allurements, but because of the power of Christ, he cannot get us. He cannot snatch us away from Jesus. God God has freed believers from their slavery to Satan, and he keeps them safe from Satan's continued attacks. Now, know that he, that he cannot harm us. That does not mean, however, that we're, we're immune to his attacks. And that it does not mean that bad things cannot happen to the people of God. All you have to do is read the New Testament, read accounts of the lives and the deaths of the apostles. And you'll know that that's absolutely not true because they uh, all but one suffered very horribly. And in fact, Jesus himself said, in this world, we will have tribulation. So bad things happen. Why? Well, because we live in a broken and in a rebellious world. So when people say, why did God let this happen? Well, God didn't let things happen. We broke the world with our sin. We caused the chaos that's that's reigning in our world he will one day set that right he promises that when he comes and sets up his kingdom he will set that right but for now we live in a broken world and we live in a rebellious world sometimes bad things happen just be simply because of the nature of living in a broken world things go wrong things break anybody's car ever break down yeah you know sometimes you know natural disasters happen or we know we catch some virus or some disease or something and that's all because we live in a world that's broken that's that's just spiraling out of control because of the sin that mankind brought into the world and then also sometimes things bad bad things happen because those who are walking in darkness these people unbelievers who are controlled by the god of this world and we know according to scripture the god of this world is satan that they hate the people of God because they're under control of the enemy who hates the people of God. And they sometimes persecute the people of God and even at times kill the people of God. It's happening, listen, I don't know if you pay attention to the news, but, but uh, you hear very, very regular right now in, in Africa of Christians being killed. Uh, and and it just simply comes down to this, that the enemy hates us. That's just the reality of it. But here's what he means by what's going on here. By virtue of our rebirth into the family of God, believers are now not under the control of the evil one. We used to be of the world. He's the God of this world. We are no longer of the world. Therefore, he is not in charge of our lives. We, we, We have been disassociated from the world. And that's his domain. In in order to escape the evil one, people must be claimed by God. It's not possible otherwise. We we cannot be free from the world without having been snatched from it to a better home. There there is no no man's land in between the two competing domains. All territory has been claimed by one or the other. Every person either belongs to God or belongs to the devil. Every person. And that doesn't mean that there aren't good people who don't know Jesus. I'm just saying, they're not serving, they're under control of their sin. They're in bondage to the to Satan and to their sin. Uh, we will either be in the grip of the evil one as members of the world, or we'll be free from his tyrannical reign as members of God's family. I think a way to help understand this idea that we can't go from The suffering of the world and the suffering of being part of this world and the horribleness of being under the tyrannical rule of the enemy, uh, without being snatched uh, up by God and pulled into His family. Over the past several years, Europe has been overwhelmed uh, over the more better than a decade now by the influx of millions of Syrian refugees. Literally millions of people have fled to escape the violent tearing apart of their cities, their towns, their villages, their homes. However, as they escape this violent civil war taking place throughout Syria, they leave there and they are left homeless. They have no home waiting for them in some other place. For most, there is no family waiting to receive them, to feed them, to tend to their wounds and grief. They are homeless, seeking the mercy of foreign governments for shelter and relief. So, They may have escaped the suffering of their natural home, but many may never again call a place home, and they just exchange one type of suffering for another type of suffering. But that is not so for those who belong to God. We have not only escaped the threat of the evil one by escaping from his domain, but we have been scooped up into the Father's loving hands. We have been given a new home, a far better one than the old, which is secure and beautiful and eternal, we are protected from the reign of evil and will never again be under its control. That's good news. Let's go on to verse 20 before we run out of time. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, not surprisingly... John ends his letter in the same way he began it, talking about Jesus. He affirms again the reality of the incarnation, because as he said, we know the Son of God has come. He also affirms that it is Jesus who gives us understanding so that we may know him who is true, God himself, in and through Jesus Christ. These words actually echo uh, the words of Luke ten twenty two, where Jesus said, No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So these false teachers had done their best to set Christ aside, to make Him unimportant, and to have so-called knowledge of God without Jesus. John, however, has been explaining all throughout this letter that that is absolutely impossible. You cannot know God without Jesus. In fact, as Jesus said, that that no one uh, that, that that no one uh, knows who the Father is except the Son, and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, we get to see the Father through Jesus. Period. Jesus Christ, as John has said over and over again, is absolutely central to true Christian faith any gospel that is built on social justice or whatever other uh, concept however noble sounding it may be if it is not built on jesus christ it is not the gospel jesus came to earth he returned to heaven and is now present through his holy spirit the the son's purpose in coming to earth was to reveal god the father and to enable believers to know him and because of our union with christ We understand the truth of the gospel. We are safe from the clutches of the evil one. We know the Father and we abide in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. Here is truth. Here is life. Here is knowledge. Here is understanding. And all of this is ours by virtue of our union with Christ, because we are in him who is true. Now let's get to verse 21 and we'll close with this as the last verse. So dear children, keep yourselves from idols, keep yourselves from idols. Now, listen, this letter actually closes with a rather abrupt command, rather than the usual salutations, usually letters end with greet. So-and-so say, Hey, to my friend over there, you know, all these sort of things. John doesn't end it with any of that stuff. He just says as the closing line, keep yourselves from idols and and the, the, that simple instruction is not hard to understand we know exactly what he's saying there but it just sort of seems to come out of nowhere See, so, you know because john doesn't even touch the subject of idols not just here but in any of his writings the, and there's no hint that his readers were struggling with idolatry so on the surface, it seems like a kind of a bizarre way to conclude the letter. You know why, John? I mean, this, you haven't even said anything about idolatry the whole time in anything you, you've ever written, and now all of a sudden, keep yourself from, idol, from idols, keep yourself from idolatry. Uh, now, while literal idolatry, physical images of false gods, is possibly meant, most likely what what he's why he added that there is because most likely idolatry is raised in direct response to the verse 20 where he mentions the true god. So if there's a true god, there are false gods. And so that's why this comes up here because it's the that when he wrote that, he said we know and we're in him we know the true god, so keep yourself from idols. John wants his readers to have confidence in their true knowledge of the true god and anything else is ultimately idolatry. Because anything else is putting your faith and your trust for your salvation in something besides Jesus. Any form of belief that leads people away from the truth is idolatry. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Tim Keller addresses this exact issue. He defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, Anything you, you seek to give you what only God can give. Idolatry is false worship that usurps God's rightful places, Lord. Anything that has become dominant, uh, the, the dominant desire of our hearts is an idol. I, I think one way you can think of it like this. Anything in your life, any part of your life, any whatever it might be. Uh, if you say, if you hold it in your hand, just imagine you hold it in your hand. And you go to God in prayer and you say, Lord, you can have all of me except this. And you close your hand. You've just given birth to an idol. Because you have just said to God, this is more important than you. You see that? If I say you can have anything, but just don't touch this. Whatever that might be. You know, I mean, for some of us that are parents, sometimes it's our kids. God, you can have anything you want, but just don't call my kids. Don't, don't send my kid to a mission field. It can be, it can be anything in our lives, anything uh, that we elevate above the living God. And it can be an object of devotion that distracts us from Christ. It can be, it can be a sin that he's deals with us. And we say, no, no, I'm going to hang on to this sin. I, I enjoy it too much. I'm not going to give it up. It it, it can be any good work that we perform to try to gain his favor uh, uh, because then we're trying to earn our way to God. And so our, our own righteousness becomes our idol because we're depending on it for salvation instead of depending on Jesus. Any person that we adore more than him. I remember a time in my life when I was going out with a girl and I thought I wanted to marry her. Thank God I didn't because I met Julie later, uh, and, but I knew. And I, I remember sitting at lunch one day with a very godly woman and she, she had the privilege. She knew me well enough and we were close enough. She could speak into my life and she knew what I was struggling with. I didn't even have to tell her. And we sat at lunch one day and she looked me uh, sat across from the table and looked at me and he said, you know, God's not finished with you. This was early in my ministry. I said, yes, I know that. And she said, you know, that if you want what God wants, you have to let, and then she said her name, you have to let her go. And I broke down crying and saying, yes, I know. I'd already been, he'd already been dealing with me about it. She had become an idol because I was going to say, well, I want her, and and, and if it means I have to give up my calling, then I want her. Any truth claim that we prefer to God's inspired word is an idol. So so in the case of the Gnostic who had this special knowledge that meant that they're that they were relying on that for their salvation. So their knowledge became their idol. Their, their pride, even in a sense, became their idol for the materialist money and possession become their God because nothing else matters more for the person who who just simply wants to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And they want to be able to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. Well, guess what? They, and this is probably the biggest God in America, they themselves have become their own God. Because they make their own decisions about what is right and wrong and do whatever they want, and they worship themselves. In short, idolatry is anything you love, enjoy, and pursue more than God, more than Christ, who is the true God in eternal life. And amazingly, the object of idolatry can even be a good thing. Some people make going to church an idol. Joe, going to church is wonderful. but if you think that somehow you're earning your way to heaven by going to church, you've just turned it into an idol because you're trusting in your action of going to church instead of trusting in Jesus. So even a good thing can be an idol. However, when we turn a good thing into a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing, and it becomes an idol. It can be anything. It's a matter of the heart. So guard yourself from the idols of power and control and comfort. These are some of the big ones in our culture. Approval, position, applause, pleasure. Your heart will never be satisfied or at rest with any of these little false gods. Keep yourself from idols. That's John's way of saying Keep yourself from anything that might take God's place in your heart. The hymn writer said it like this, one of my favorite songs, but one of the verses says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I have to know that that's my heart. That I have a tendency to, in the flesh to want to wander away, and I have to pay attention. I have to keep my focus. I have to keep away from those idols. So examine your heart today. What do you see? What, what has priority? What, is there anything in your life that you've been holding back from God? Is there anything in your life that has become more important to you than serving Jesus? Where do your deepest affections lie? And if they're not where they need to be, then today is the day that you need to go to Him and repent Confess that sin of idolatry and let him cleanse you. What did he say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you find that that's in your heart, confess it to him. Deal with it. Don't continue to chase your idols. Let go of it because, remember, what He has for you, His will for you, is going to be far greater, far better. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and I thank You for this beautiful book of 1 John that You've given to us. And Lord, we've learned so much. But Lord, we don't want to just have this as head knowledge. We want it to be active in our lives. And so God, I pray that these things that we've learned, these things that You've spoken to us, that God, you would sink them deep in our hearts and you'd keep uh every every day, I and mean, constantly, Lord God, keep reinforcing what your word says, and so that God, that we would make sure that there is nothing more important than you. That nothing comes before our walk with you. And God, that in we do when we do that, I, we believe you, Lord, that what you have for us is far greater than anything this world could offer. And that, Lord, is what we want. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.